415, chapters 19 and 20 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 12 minutes and 30 seconds. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 415 Cheap Temptations. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I am well. And I have been giving in lately to cheap temptations. Probably not the kind that you're on (laughs) that might come to mind when you hear that phrase. I've been giving in to recording birds. If you follow my clamor feed, you've you've probably noticed the inordinate number of morning bird songs that I've been recording. I can't stop myself. I get up early, it's dark, it's quiet, and then all of a sudden one bird will start and then another joins in and then it's a cacophony and it's marvelous and I have no idea what any of these birds are, but they're just lovely. And every so often we get Canadian geese into the mix and our frogs. I've been, oh, I've been cleaning out the pond several times and now the frogs are happy. And now there's six of them. I believe when we moved in, there were three and now there's six. So I guess they're happy and they make noise and they're funny little guys. Last night I had to go fix the fountain part. And of course, when you approach the pond, all of the frogs nosedive off the sides of the pond where the rocks are and go right back in the water, except one, one who was off to the left side. All the other ones are over on the right where there's a plant. But as I was working on the the pump, I looked down and there were these eyes staring at me from the top of the water, just at water level. And he he stayed there the whole time, just watching. <laughs> It was like being in one of the chilling tales that that I narrate. It just wouldn't stop staring at me with those big bug eyes. But evidently it approved of what I did to fix the pond and happily went on his merry way when I left. So there it is. I don't know if it's a he, maybe it was a she. I have no idea. But birds and frogs aside, today we have two fantastic chapters for you. So... Let's move on to our crafty chat, and then to chapters 19 and 20. So uh, I found some a bobbin of uh, singles of uh, Rambouillet that I had dyed, and I tried as carefully as I could to separate it into two bobbins, for plying, and I plied it, and I haven't washed it yet, but this is 135 yards oh. of two-ply Rambouillet. It's kind of nubby. It's got some weird bits, but I think that's pretty focused. Yes, that looks great. So I, I did this plying, and it, it had been spun on the wheel, but I plied it on the spindle. I like doing that. Uh, you have more control, I think. 
Is that, uh, is that like yeah. a movie, kind of a movie peaky color? Yeah, it's a pinkish purplish color. And remember all that spindle spinning I have been showing the last several weeks. I finished it. I finished my eight ounces of Be Myself. Half of it is merino silk and half of it is BFL silk, but all in the same colorways. So I got seven bobbins of singles. Whoa. Wow. So this is, um, for those playing along at home, it's a cream, brown, yellow, and orange. And the bobbins definitely look different. I think later in my spinning, because I started spinning this during Tour de Fleece of 2014 and then set it aside and stuff. As I got to the more recent part, I was doing longer repeats of the color. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be really interesting looking when I apply it. I just haven't applied it yet. I want to, I'm debating whether to use the wheel or the spindle. Yeah. Well, I understand that. When you do your spindle spinning, are you doing it usually at night, the same time that you would be doing knitting or do you take it with you? Usually at it's at home. Um, however, I did a lot of the plying of that at, at the hairdresser when the girls were getting their hair cut on Saturday. So it was awesome plying in public. And I had people, I was amazed that nobody asked because everybody was staring at it as they walked past back and forth, back and forth. And I kept waiting for somebody to ask what I was doing. And no one did. I was so bummed. Don't um, they know that we're maybe they were dying to suck them into our world? Either that or else they were all so crafty themselves that they knew what I was doing and didn't feel the need to ask. But I doubt doubt that. Yeah, because if they were were one of us, they would have asked you what spindle and what fiber. Right. True. True. Or what I was going to do with it. and Yeah. So anyhow, (laughs) Tara said, little kid pointing, mommy, 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 look, that lady's being odd. Um, (laughs) I've had little kid ask me, what are you playing with? And I thought that was pretty cool because it, it, it does look like yeah. you're playing with something. Um, that, was, that was a very logical question. Today, I have one, one more thing that I discovered just today. And this is appropriate with the movie that is coming out shortly that my, I know one of my kids is dying to see. But if you like Amigurumi, oh. this is... Amigurumi of the Avengers. Little teeny Amigurumi of the Avengers. So there's Black Widow, Captain America, Hawkeye, Thor, Iron Man, and Hulk. And they come, and they're all about each about two inches tall when finished. And they all come together as a, a bundle of six patterns for $9.99 on Ravelry. And it says Avengers Volume 1. Amigurumi miniatures. So I guess there will be more later. But I just thought they were really adorable and they fit in with the uh, foosball table hack that we've been doing for uh, the wedding. As I was starting to research the Paris places that I was going to share with you today, I received a voicemail from Gabrielle. And yes, the phone line is back up. 206-350-1642. And 
By the way, if you wanted to call in now that it's working and share your favorite book from when you were a kid or from now and why you love it and what it's done for you and stuff like that, feel free to call in for our 10th anniversary special because today, the day that I'm recording this audio, is in fact our 10th anniversary. It's pretty exciting stuff. Anyway, Gabrielle sent a voicemail and at first it felt like a a voicemail just for me. And as she started to go on, I thought, oh no, this is a really interesting idea and I should play this for everyone. So this is Gabrielle, who is going to be going to France shortly. She's going in May with her students. And some of the thoughts that she had as she was preparing for the trip. So today's Paris talk is going to be from Gabrielle. Hi, Heather. It's Gabrielle calling. I was listening to you talking about um, your awesome Paris trip again. And um, I leave in a week, actually, with my eighth grade students to go to Paris. They do the trip every year, the eighth grade and the fifth grade in May. For two weeks, they go and stay with their penthouse or their croissant. And um, I had just finished creating a unit with another teacher for them to prepare them for the trip, to have an assignment, and then something when they come back. And I'll send some of the pieces to you because they might be fun for you and your trip people to, to listen to. We're asking them to think about themselves as not Americans in Paris because they're not all Americans. Some of them are French, some are Canadian, some are from other places. But to think of them as being teenagers going to Paris and finding something that stands out to them on their trip. And we're using writings from a number of American writers living in France and then also some contemporary essays. And one of the things that they've been listening to is an episode of This American Life uh, on Paris with David Sedaris and a couple of other people, including a woman who had been a lawyer and had moved to Paris for her practice. And she talks about being African-American in the United States versus in Paris and what that, that difference is and the distinction is for her. So we're asking them to read these things, and then when they're there, choosing moments to reflect on and I am mentioning it to you because you're you're going and also I don't know I think because you're going and because I'm planning this unit simultaneously I always wonder how many of your listeners who are not teachers think about how much goes into what you do for Craftlet or what teachers do in terms of planning a cohesive unit like how do you think about it and how you come up with it and as you're planning your trip you know, you have outcomes and goals for them that you want to meet that are not unlike what you do for the book. Anyway, so I'll send you the link, though, because I think that you would enjoy the Paris podcast, the Paris episode of This American Life. It's definitely interesting thinking about, you know, your individual place and your individual unique experience, what you bring to your trip and how even if you've been to Paris before, this will be a different experience because you're going with people on a specific type of adventure. You know, for me, I've been to Paris now a few times. I went once with my sister. I went once for New Year's Eve by myself. I went back with my husband when we started dating. We went back again with our children. So these are different experiences each time. And so, you know, asking ourselves, like, what will it be beforehand? and then kind of looking for those moments to become the ones that are sort of watershed moments for us on that trip. I think it's really interesting. Anyway, that's rambling. It's a Sunday. Hope you're all well. Bye. So I thought that was interesting. 
And yeah, I don't know if people outside of the teaching profession, if they're aware of, if you're aware of, if if outsiders <laughs> are aware of what goes into planning. And that's the thing that's so frustrating, is even the worst teachers still have to plan. And even a bad job of it takes an extraordinary amount of time and focus and effort. So it's a weird job. I can't think of another one that's like it. But that is neither here nor there when we come to The Count of Monte Cristo. Today on The Count of Monte Cristo, I promised you two chapters. This is chapter 19 and chapter 20. And good chapters they are indeed. I am going to give the same heads up kind of warning that I often find myself giving when we're doing Victorian literature or Dickens in particular, which is that melodrama was an accepted style. Uh, it was beginning when Dumas was writing this, uh, kind of a, a byproduct of the Romantic movement. The Count of Monte Cristo is very firmly in the Romantic camp, capital R, in that there are certain tropes that we see used. There are certain types of characters, like the Abbe is, is the philosophical Yoda character, or Edmund will be our innocent or our hero. We have certain elements to the story that are relatively taken for granted. The coincidences, uh, more or less an acceptance of uh, the supernatural, uh, the importance of nature, all of those things do show up in The Count of Monte Cristo. But we also have these moments of not just heightened realism, but heightened emotion. And for those of us in the 20th and 21st centuries, these kinds of moments in these old books are, I think, part of what make them feel old and creaky. And certainly if the book were produced now, it would be kind of odd to come across something like that. Unless, I suppose, you were reading a subgenre of young adult fiction where I've seen some pretty overwrought stuff happening. But I think if you go back to thinking like a teenager, actually, that's not a bad parallel. In many ways, the romantics are just a bunch of emotional teenagers. They They feel all the feels. And that is something that as we grow older, for one thing, our body chemistry calms down and we're able to modulate our life a little bit better. But that also removes some feeling from us as well. And these chapters are big emotional chapters. And I mean all the emotions, uh, excitement, fear, love, sadness, terror, joy, and big honking excitement. We get all of it in these chapters today. And just to be as sure as I can be without speaking fluent French or being able to read fluent French, I went and I checked my newer, better translation against the older Victorian translation. And I was specifically looking to see if the, the kind of heightened emotional state of the Victorian translation was accurate. And it is. So if you are the kind of person who tends to go into movies or books that have big emotional scenes and you get turned off by that, 
or if your approach to that kind of thing is, is a little modern, a little ironic, a little cynical, try and hold back on those feelings while you listen to these chapters and try to hear them the way that they were originally intended. Well, for one thing, I think you'll enjoy them a lot more. And for another thing, it will set you up better for what happens next. There's only one term that stood out to me today as being odd or different or out of the ordinary, for me anyway, and that word is mistral, M-I-S-T-R-A-L. And that is the name given to a northwesterly cold, northwesterly wind that comes through the Rhone Valley and down into the Mediterranean. Just like uh, some winds get, you know, Scirocco is the one that comes to mind. It's a, a wind that has a name. The Mistral is a wind that has a name. So that's it. And I think that's everything. Let's listen to chapters 19 and 20 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas, read for us by David Clark. Chapter 19, The Third Attack. Now that this treasure, which had so long been the object of the Abbe's meditations, could ensure the future happiness of him whom Faria really loved as a son, it had doubled its value in his eyes, and every day he expatiated on the amount, explaining to Dante all the good which, with thirteen or fourteen millions of francs, a man could do in these days to his friends, and then Dante's countenance became gloomy, for the oath of vengeance he had taken recurred to his memory and he reflected how much ill in these times a man with thirteen or fourteen million could do to his enemies. The abbe did not know the island of Monte Cristo, but Dante knew it, and had often passed it, situated twenty-five miles from Pianosa, between Corsica and the island of Elba, and had once touched there. This island was, always had been, and still is, completely deserted. It is a rock of almost conical form, which looks as though it had been thrust up by volcanic force from the depths to the surface of the ocean. Dante drew a plan of the island for Faria, and Faria gave Dante advice as to the means he should employ to recover the treasure. But Dante was far from being as enthusiastic and confident as the old man. It was past a question now that Faria was not a lunatic, and the way in which he had achieved the discovery, which had given rise to the suspicion of his madness, increased Edmond's admiration of him. But at the same time, Dante could not believe that the deposit, supposing it had ever existed, still existed, and though he considered the treasure as by no means chimerical, he yet believed it was no longer there. However, as if fate resolved on depriving the prisoners of their last chance, and making them understand that they were condemned to perpetual imprisonment, a new misfortune befell them. The gallery on the seaside which had long been in ruins, was rebuilt. They had repaired it completely, and stopped up with vast masses of stone the whole Dante had partly filled in. But for this precaution, which it will be remembered the abbe had made to Edmond, the misfortune would have been still greater, for their attempt to escape would have been detected, and they would undoubtedly have been separated. Thus a new, a stronger and more inexorable barrier was interposed, to cut off the realisation of their hopes. "'You see,' said the young man, with an air of sorrowful resignation to Faria, "'that God deems it right to take from me any claim to merit for what you call my devotion to you. I have promised to remain forever with you, 
and now I could not break my promise if I would. The treasure will be no more mine than yours, and neither of us will quit this prison. But my real treasure is not that, my dear friend, which awaits me beneath the sombre rocks of Monte Cristo. It is your presence, our living together five or six hours a day, in spite of our jailers. It is the rays of intelligence you have elicited from my brain, the language you have implanted in my memory, and which have taken root there with all their philological ramifications. These different science that you have made so easy to me by the depth of the knowledge you possess of them, and the clearness of the principles to which you have reduced them, this is my treasure, my beloved friend, and with this you have made me rich and happy. Believe me and take comfort. This is better for me than tons of gold and cases of diamonds, even were they not as problematical as the clouds we see in the morning floating over the sea, which we take for terra firma, and which evaporate and vanish as we draw near to them. To have you as long as possible near me, to hear your eloquent speech, which embellishes my mind, strengthens my soul, and makes my whole frame capable of great and terrible things, if I should ever be free, so fills my whole existence, that the despair to which I was just on the point of yielding when I knew you has no longer any hold over me. And this, this is my fortune, not chimerical, but actual. I owe you my real good, my present happiness, and all the sovereigns of the earth, even Caesar Borgia himself, could not deprive me of this. Thus, if not actually happy, Yet the days these two unfortunates passed together went quickly. Faria, who for so long a time had kept silence as to the treasure, now perpetually talked of it. As he had prophesied would be the case, he remained paralysed in the right arm and the left leg, and had given up all hope of ever enjoying it himself. But he was continually thinking over some means of escape for his young companion, and anticipating the pleasure he would enjoy. For fear the letter might be some day lost or stolen, he compelled Dante to learn it by heart, and Dante knew it from the first to the last word. Then he destroyed the second portion, assured that if the first were seized, no one would be able to discover its real meaning. Whole hours passed while Faria was giving instructions to Dante, instructions which were to serve him when he was at liberty. Then once free from the day and hour and moment when he was so, he could have but only one thought, which was to gain Monte Cristo by some means, and remain there alone under some pretext which would arouse no suspicions, and once there to endeavour to find the wonderful caverns and search in the appointed spot, the appointed spot, be it remembered, being the farthest angle in the second opening. In the meanwhile, the hours passed, if not rapidly, at least tolerably. Faria, as we have said, without having recovered the use of his hand and foot, had regained all the clearness of his understanding, and had gradually, besides the moral instructions we have detailed, taught his youthful companion the patient and sublime duty of a prisoner, who learns to make something from nothing. They were thus perpetually employed. Faria that he might not see himself grow old, 
Dante, for fear of recalling the almost extinct past, which now only floated in his memory like a distant light, wandering in the night. So life went on for them, as it does for those who are not victims of misfortune, and whose activities glide along mechanically and tranquilly beneath the eye of providence. But beneath his superficial calm, there were in the heart of the young man, and perhaps in that of the old man, many repressed desires, many stifled sighs, which would vent when Faria was left alone, and when Edmond returned to his cell. One night, Edmund awoke suddenly, believing that he heard someone calling him. He opened his eyes upon utter darkness. His name, or rather a plaintive voice which essayed to pronounce his name, reached him. He sat up in bed, and a cold sweat broke out upon his brow. Undoubtedly the call came from Freyesdin dungeon. Alas, murmured Edmond, can it be? He moved his bed, drew up the stone, rushed into the passage, and reached the opposite extremity. The secret entrance was open. By the light of the wretched and wavering lamp of which we have spoken, Dante saw the old man, pale, but yet erect, clinging to the bedstead. His features were writhing with those horrible symptoms which he already knew, and which had so seriously alarmed him when he saw them for the first time. "'Alas, my dear friend,' said Faria in a resigned tone, "'you understand, do you not? And I need not attempt to explain to you.' Edmond uttered a cry of agony, and quite out of his senses rushed towards the door, exclaiming, "'Help! Help!' Faria had just sufficient strength to restrain him. "'Silence!' he said, or you are lost. We must now only think of you, my dear friend, and so act as to render your captivity supportable or your flight possible. It would require years to do again what I have done here, and the results would be instantly destroyed if our jailers knew we have communicated with each other. Besides, be assured, my dear Edmond, the dungeon I am about to leave will not long remain empty. Some other unfortunate being will soon take my place, and to him you will appear like an angel of salvation. Perhaps he will be young, strong, and enduring like yourself, and will aid you in your escape, while I have been but a hindrance. You will no longer have half a dead body tied to you as a drag to all your movements. At length, Providence has done something for you. He restores to you more than he takes away. And it was time I should die. Edmond could only clasp his hands and exclaim, Oh, my friend, my friend, speak not thus. And then resuming all his presence of mind, which had for a moment staggered under this blow and his strength which had failed at the words of the old man, he said, Oh, I have saved you once, and I will save you a second time. And raising the foot of the bed, he drew out the phial, still a third filled with the red liquor. See, he exclaimed, there remains still some of the magic draught. Quick, quick, tell me what I must do this time. Are there any fresh instructions? Speak, my friend, I listen. There is not a hope, replied Faria, shaking his head. But no matter. 
God wills it, that man whom he has created, and in whose heart he has so profoundly rooted the love of life, should do all in his power to preserve that existence, which, however painful it may be, is yet always so dear. Oh, yes, yes, exclaimed Dante, and I tell you that I will save you yet. Well, then, try. The cold gains upon me. I feel the blood flowing towards my brain. These horrible chills, which make my teeth chatter and seem to dislocate my bones, begin to pervade my whole frame. In five minutes the malady will reach its height, and in a quarter of an hour there will be nothing left of me but a corpse. Oh! exclaimed Dante, his heart wrung with anguish. Do as you did before, only do not wait so long. All the springs of life are now exhausted in me, and death, he continued looking at his paralyzed arm and leg, has but half its work to do. If after having made me swallow twelve drops instead of ten, you see that I do not recover, then pour the rest down my throat. Now lift me on my bed, for I can no longer support myself. Edmond took the old man in his arms and laid him on the bed. And now, my dear friend, said Faria, sole consolation of my wretched existence, you whom heaven gave me somewhat late, but still gave me a priceless gift, and for which I am most grateful, at the moment of separating from you forever, I wish you all the happiness and all the prosperity you so well deserve, my son, I bless thee. The young man cast himself on his knees, leaning his head against the old man's bed. Listen now to what I say in this my dying moment. The treasure of the spadas exists. God grants me the boon of vision unrestricted by time or space. I see it in the depths of the inner cavern. My eyes pierce the inmost recesses of the earth and are dazzled at the sight of so much riches. If you do escape, remember that the poor abbe, whom all the world called mad, was not so. Hasten to Monte Cristo, avail yourself of the fortune, for you have indeed suffered long enough. A violent convulsion attacked the old man. Dante raised his head and saw Faria's eyes injected with blood. It seemed as if a flow of blood had ascended from the chest to the head. Adieu, adieu murmured the old man, clasping Edmond's hand convulsively. Adieu! Oh, no, no, not yet, he cried. Do not forsake me. Oh, succor him. Help, help, help! Hush, hush, murmured the dying man, that they may not separate us if you save me. You are right. Oh, yes, yes, be assured, I shall save you. Besides, although you suffer much, you do not seem to be in such agony as you were before. Do not a mistake. I suffer less because there is in me less strength to endure. At your age, we have faith in life. It is the privilege of youth to believe and hope. But old men see death more clearly. Oh, tis here, tis here, tis over. My sight is gone, my senses fail. Your hand, Dante. Adieu. Adieu. And raising himself by a final effort, in which he summoned all his faculties, he said,
Monte Cristo, forget not, Monte Cristo. And he fell back on the bed. The crisis was terrible, and a rigid form with twisted limbs, swollen eyelids and lips flecked with bloody foam, lay on the bed of torture in place of the intellectual being who so lately rested there. Dante took the lamp, placed it on a projecting stone above the bed, whence its tremulous light fell with strange and fantastic ray on the distorted countenance and motionless, stiffened body. With steady gaze he awaited confidently the moment for administering the restorative. When he believed that the right moment had arrived, he took the knife, pried open the teeth which offered less resistance than before, counted one after the other twelve drops, and watched. The file contained perhaps twice as much more. He waited ten minutes, a quarter of an hour, half an hour. No change took place. Trembling, his hair erect, his brow bathed with perspiration, he counted the seconds by the beating of his heart. Then, he thought, it was time to make the last trial, and he put the file to the purple lips of Faria, and without having occasion to force open his jaws, which had remained extended, he poured the whole of the liquid down his throat. The draught produced a galvanic effect. A violent trembling pervaded the old man's limbs. His eyes opened until it was fearful to gaze upon them. He heaved a sigh which resembled a shriek, and then his convulsed body returned gradually to its former immobility, the eyes remaining open. Half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half elapsed, and during this period of anguish Edmond leaned over his friend, his hand applied to his heart, and felt the body gradually grow cold, and the heart's pulsation become more and more deep and dull, until at length it stopped. The last movement of the heart ceased, the face became livid, the eyes remained open, but the eyeballs were glazed. It was six o'clock in the morning, the dawn was just breaking and its feeble ray came into the dungeon and paled the ineffectual light of the lamp. Strange shadows passed over the countenance of the dead man and at times gave it the appearance of life. While the struggle between day and night lasted, Dante still doubted, but as soon as the daylight gained the preeminence, he saw that he was alone with a corpse. Then an invincible and extreme terror seized upon him, and he dared not again press the hand that hung out of bed. He dared no longer to gaze on those fixed and vacant eyes, which he tried many times to close, but in vain. They opened again as soon as shut. He extinguished the lamp carefully, concealed it, and then went away, closing as well as he could the entrance to the secret passage by the large stone as he descended. It was time, for the jailer was coming. On this occasion he began his rounds at Dante's cell, and on leaving him he went on to Faria's dungeon, taking thither breakfast and some linen. Nothing betokened that the man knew anything of what had occurred. He went on his way. Dante was then seized with an indescribable desire to know what was going on in the dungeon of his unfortunate friend. He therefore returned by the subterraneous gallery, and arrived in time to hear the exclamations of the turnkey, who called out for help. Other turnkeys came, 
and then was heard the regular tramp of soldiers. Last of all came the governor. Edmond heard the creaking of the bed as they moved the corpse, heard the voice of the governor who asked them to throw water on the dead man's face, and seeing that in spite of this application the prisoner did not recover, they sent for the doctor. The governor then went out, and words of pity fell on Dante's listening ears, mingled with brutal laughter. "'Well, well,' said one, "'the madman has gone to look after his treasure. "'Good journey to him. <laughs> "'With all his millions, "'he will not have enough to pay for his shroud,' said another. "'Oh,' added a third voice, "'the shrouds of the Chateau d'If are not dear.' "'Perhaps,' said one of the previous speakers, "'as he was a churchman, "'they may go to some expense in his behalf.' They may give him the honours of the sack. <laughs> Edmund did not lose a word, but comprehended very little of what was said. The voices soon ceased, and it seemed to him as if every one had left the cell. Still, he dared not enter, as they might have left some turnkey to watch the dead. He remained, therefore, mute and motionless, hardly venturing to breathe. At the end of an hour he heard a faint noise which increased, it was the governor who returned, followed by the doctor and other attendants. There was a moment's silence. It was evident that the doctor was examining the dead body. The inquiry soon commenced. The doctor analysed the symptoms of the malady to which the prisoner had succumbed, and declared that he was dead. Questions and answers followed in a nonchalant manner that made Dante indignant, for he felt that all the world should have for the poor abbe a love and respect equal to his own. "'I am very sorry for what you tell me,' said the governor, replying to the assurance of the doctor, "'that the old man is really dead, for he was a quiet, inoffensive prisoner, happy in his folly, and required no watching.' "'Oh,' added the turnkey, "'there was no occasion for watching him. He would have stayed here fifty years. I'll answer for it, without any attempt to escape.' "'Still,' said the governor, "'I believe it will be requisite, notwithstanding your certainty, "'and not that I doubt your science, "'but in discharge of my official duty "'that we should be perfectly assured that the prisoner is dead.' "'There was a moment of complete silence, "'during which Dante, still listening, "'knew that the doctor was examining the corpse a second time. "'You may make your mind easy,' said the doctor. "'He is dead.' "'I will answer for that.' "'You know, sir,' said the governor, persisting, "'that we are not content in such cases "'as this with such a simple examination. "'In spite of all appearances, "'be so kind, therefore, "'as to finish your duty "'by fulfilling the formalities "'described by law.' "'Let the irons be heated,' said the doctor. "'But really it is a useless precaution.' This order to heat the irons made Dante shudder. He heard hasty steps, the creaking of a door, people going and coming, and some minutes afterwards a turnkey entered, saying, "'Here is the brazier, lighted.' There was a moment's silence, and then was heard the crackling of burning flesh, of which the peculiar and nauseous smell penetrated even behind the wall where Dante was listening in horror. The perspiration poured forth upon the young man's brow, and he felt as if he should faint. "'You see, sir, 
He is really dead, said the doctor. This burn in the heel is decisive. The poor fool is cured of his folly and delivered from his captivity. Wasn't his name Faria? inquired one of the officers who accompanied the governor. Yes, sir, and as he said, it was an ancient name. He was too very learned and rational enough on all points which did not relate to his treasure. But on that, indeed, he was intractable. It is the sort of malady which we call monomania, said the doctor. You had never anything to complain of? said the governor to the jailer, who had charge of the abbey. Never, sir, replied the jailer. Never, on the contrary, he seemed to amuse me very much by telling me stories. One day, too, when my wife was ill, he gave me a prescription which cured her. Aha, said the doctor. I did not know that I had a rival, but I hope, governor, that you will show him all proper respect. Yes, yes, make your mind easy. He shall be decently interred in the newest sack we can find. Will that satisfy you? Must this last formality take place in your presence, sir? inquired a turnkey. Certainly, but make haste. I cannot stay here all day. Other footsteps going and coming were now heard, and a moment afterwards a noise of rustling canvas reached Dante's ears. The bed creaked, and the heavy footfall of a man who lifts a weight sounded on the floor. Then the bed again creaked under the weight deposited upon it. "'This evening,' said the governor. "'Will there be any mass?' asked one of the attendants. "'That is impossible,' replied the governor. "'The chaplain of the chateau came to me yesterday to beg for leave of absence, in order to take a trip to Hier for a week. I told him I would attend to the prisoners in his absence.' If the poor abbe had not been in such a hurry, he might have had his requiem. Pooh, pooh, said the doctor, with the impiety usual in persons of his profession. He is a churchman. God will respect his profession and not give the devil the wicked delight of sending him a priest. A shout of laughter followed this brutal jest. Meanwhile, the operation of putting the body in the sack was going on. This evening said the governor, when the task was ended. "'At what hour?' inquired a turnkey. "'Why, about ten or eleven o'clock. "'Shall we watch by the cops? "'Of what use would it be? "'Shut the dungeon as if you were alive, that is all.' "'Then the steps retreated, "'and the voices died away in the distance. "'The noise of the door with its creaking hinges and bolts ceased.' and a silence more sombre than that of solitude ensued, the silence of death, which was all-pervasive, and struck its icy chill to the very soul of Dante. Then he raised the flagstone cautiously with his head, and looked carefully around the chamber. It was empty, and Dante emerged from the tunnel. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20. The Cemetery of the Chateau d'If. On the bed, at full length and faintly illuminated by the pale light that came from the window, lay a sack of canvas, and under its rude folds was stretched a long and stiffened form. It was Ferrier's last winding sheet. A winding sheet which, as the turnkey said, cost so little. Everything was in readiness. 
a barrier had been placed between Dante and his old friend. No longer could Edmond look into those wide open eyes which had seemed to be penetrating the mysteries of death. No longer could he clasp the hand which had done so much to make his existence blessed. Faria, the beneficent and cheerful companion, with whom he was accustomed to live so intimately, no longer breathed. He seated himself on the edge of that terrible bed, and fell into melancholy and gloomy reverie. Alone, he was alone again, again condemned to silence, again face to face with nothingness. Alone, never again to see the face, never again to hear the voice of the only human being who united him to earth. Was not Faria's fate the better, after all, to solve the problem of life at its source, even at the risk of horrible suffering? The idea of suicide, which his friend had driven away and kept away by his cheerful presence, now hovered like a phantom over the abbe's dead body. If I could die, he said, I should go where he goes, and should assuredly find him again. But how to die? It is very easy, he went on with a smile. I would remain here, rush on the first person that opens the door, strangle him, and then they will guillotine me. But excessive grief is like a storm at sea where the frail bark is tossed from the depths to the top of the wave. Dante recoiled from the idea of so infamous a death and passed suddenly from despair to an ardent desire for life and liberty. Die? Oh no, he exclaimed. Not die now, after having lived and suffered so long and so much. Die? Yes, had I died years ago, but now to die would be indeed to give away to the sarcasm of destiny. No, I want to live. I shall struggle to the very last. I will yet win back the happiness of which I have been deprived. Before I die, I must not forget that I have my executioners to punish, and perhaps too, who knows, some friends to reward. Yet they will forget me here, and I shall die in my dungeon like Faria. As he said this, he became silent and gazed straight before him, like one overwhelmed with a strange and amazing thought. Suddenly he arose, lifted his hand to his brow as if his brain were giddy, paced twice or thrice round the dungeon, and then paused abruptly by the bed. "'Just God,' he muttered, "'whence comes this thought? Is it from thee? Since none but the dead pass freely from this dungeon, let me take the place of the dead.' Without giving himself time to reconsider his decision, and indeed that he might not allow his thoughts to be distracted from his desperate resolution, he bent over the appalling shroud, opened it with the knife which Faria had made, drew the corpse from the sack and bore it along the tunnel to his own chamber, laid it on his couch, tied around its head the rag he wore at night around his own, covered it with his counterpane, once again kissed the ice-cold brow and tried vainly to close the resisting eyes which glared horribly, turned the head towards the wall so that the jailer might, when he brought the evening meal, believe that he was asleep, as was his frequent custom, entered the tunnel again, drew the bed against the wall, returned to the other cell, took from the hiding place the needle and thread, flung off his rags that they might feel only naked flesh beneath the coarse canvas, and getting inside the sack, placed himself in the posture in which the dead body had been laid, and sewed up the mouth of the sack from the inside. 
He would have been discovered by the beating of his heart if by any mischance the jailers had entered at that moment. Dante might have waited until the evening visit was over, but he was afraid that the governor would change his mind and order the dead body to be removed earlier. In that case, his last hope would have been destroyed. Now his plans were fully made, and this is what he intended to do. If while he was being carried out the gravediggers should discover that they were bearing a live instead of a dead body, Dante did not intend to give them time to recognize him, but with a sudden cut of the knife he meant to open the sack from top to bottom and, profiting by their alarm, escape. If they tried to catch him, he would use his knife to better purpose. If they took him to the cemetery and laid him in a grave, he would allow himself to be covered with earth, and then, as it was night, the gravediggers could scarcely have turned their backs before he would have worked his way through the yielding soil and escaped. He hoped that the weight of earth would not be so great that he could not overcome it. If he was detected in this and the earth proved too heavy, he would be stifled, and then, so much the better, all would be over. Dante had not eaten since the preceding evening, but he had not thought of hunger, nor did he think of it now. His situation was too precarious to allow him even time to reflect on any thought but one. The first risk that Dante ran was that the jailer, when he brought him his supper at seven o'clock, might perceive the change that had been made, fortunately twenty times at least, from misanthropy or fatigue. Dante had received his jailer in bed, and then the man placed his bread and soup on the table and went away without saying a word. This time the jailer might not be as silent as usual, but speak to Dante, and seeing that he received no reply, go to the bed, and thus discover all. When seven o'clock came, Dante's agony really began. His hand placed upon his heart was unable to redress its throbbings, while with the other he wiped the perspiration from his temples. From time to time, chills ran through his whole body and clutched his heart in a grasp of ice. Then he thought he was going to die. Yet the hours passed on without any unusual disturbance, and Dante knew that he had escaped the first peril. It was a good augury. At length, about the hour the governor had appointed, footsteps were heard on the stairs. Edmond felt that the moment had arrived, summoned up all his courage, held his breath, and would have been happy if at the same time he could have repressed the throbbing of his veins. The footsteps, they were double, paused at the door, and Dante guessed that the two gravediggers had come to seek him. This idea was soon converted into certainty when he heard the noise they made in putting down the hand beer. The door opened and the dim light reached Dante's eyes through the coarse sack that covered him. He saw two shadows approach his bed, a third remaining at the door with a torch in its hand. The two men approaching the ends of the bed took the sack by its extremities. "'He's heavy enough, though, for an old thin man,' said one as he raised the head. "'They say every year adds half a pound to the weight of the bones,' said another, lifting the feet. "'Have you tied the knot?' inquired the first speaker. "'What would be the use of carrying so much more weight?' was the reply. "'I can do that when we get there.' "'Yes, you're right,' replied the companion. "'What's the nut for?' thought Dante. They deposited the supposed corpse on the bier. Edmund stiffened himself in order to play the part of a dead man, and then the party, lighted by the man with the torch, who went first, ascended the stairs. 
Suddenly he felt the fresh and sharp night air, and Dante knew that the mistral was blowing. It was a sensation in which pleasure and pain were strangely mingled. The bearers went on for twenty paces, then stopped, putting the beer down on the ground. One of them went away, and Dante heard his shoes striking on the pavement. "'Where am I?' he asked himself. "'Really, he is by no means a light load,' said the other bearer, sitting on the edge of the hand-barrow. Dante's first impulse was to escape, but fortunately he did not attempt it. "'Give us a light,' said the other bearer, "'or I shall never find what I am looking for.' The man with the torch complied, although not asked in the most polite terms. "'What can he be looking for?' thought Edmond. "'The spade, perhaps?' An exclamation of satisfaction indicated that the grave-digger had found the object of his search. "'Here it is at last,' he said. "'Not without some trouble, though.' "'Yes,' was the answer. "'But he has lost nothing by waiting.' As he said this, the man came towards Edmund, who heard a heavy, metallic substance laid down beside him, and at the same moment a cord was fastened around his feet with sudden and painful violence. "'Well?' "'Have you tied the nut?' inquired the grave-digger, who was looking on. "'Yes, and pretty tight, too, I can tell you,' was the answer. "'Move on, then.' And the beer was lifted once more, and they proceeded. They advanced fifty paces farther, and then stopped to open a door, then went forward again. The noise of the waves dashing against the rocks on which the chateau is built reached Dante's ear distinctly as they went forward. "'Bad weather!' "'observed one of the bearers. "'Not a pleasant night for a dip in the sea.' "'Why, yes. "'The abbe runs a chance of being wet,' said the other. "'And then there was a burst of brutal laughter. "'Dante did not comprehend the jest, "'but his hair stood erect on his head. "'Well, here we are at last,' said one of them. "'A little farther, a little farther,' said the other. "'You know very well that the last was stopped on his way, dashed on the rocks, "'and the governor told us next day that we were careless fellows.' "'They ascended five or six more steps, "'and then Dante felt that they took him one by the head and the other by the heels "'and swung him to and fro. "'One,' said the grave-diggers. Two, three, "'and at the same instant Dante felt himself flung into the air like a wounded bird,' falling, falling with a rapidity that made his blood curdle. Although drawn downwards by the heavy weight which hastened his rapid descent, it seemed to him as if the fall lasted for a century. At last, with a horrible splash, he darted like an arrow into the ice-cold water, and as he did so he uttered a shrill cry, stifled in a moment by his immersion beneath the waves. Dante had been flung into the sea, and was dragged into its depths by a thirty-six-pound shot tied to his feet. The sea is the cemetery of the Chateau d'If. End of chapter 20 If you had read The Count of Monte Cristo before, or if you had seen the movies, you knew this was coming. But if you hadn't read it before or seen it, you didn't. Not necessarily. And remember last episode or the episode before, I said, if you haven't read this before or seen the movie, write down what you think is going to happen next. Did you do that? I hope. And were you right? Did you get it? 
One of the things that's so interesting about the Count of Monte Cristo now is that to us, these particular adventures that Edmond has gone through in prison are a little, a little commonplace, a little to be expected. And it is an odd thing to think, oh, but wait, this is the book that started that. This was the first. And the firsts aren't always the best. Sometimes, you know, it's the the one who figures out something first. That's great. They get it. But it's the one who comes along second, who really figures out how to do it right. And in this situation, maybe the real first first was a newspaper article. But as far as fiction goes, Dumas' version is the one that everyone goes back to. And I, I know on one of my readings of these chapters, the moment that they get Edmund out of doors and he's hit through the sack that he's in, he's hit with that wind, with the mistral, all of a sudden that just it hit me. And I thought, God, he's been, what is it, 14 years? Six years on his own and eight years with Faria. 14 years he's been kept inside a dank, smelly, cold miserable, clammy dungeon. And all of a sudden, he gets hit in the face, albeit through a sheet, with fresh air, cold, crisp, fresh air. Dumas did not accidentally put that in the mention of the mistral wind. And I'm sure that carries even more meaning with it if you are someone who lives on the southern coast of France. But for Edmund, God, that must have been extraordinary to suddenly feel nature. It's that romantic thing again. And Faria, oh, that was so, so sad and so melodramatic. It's almost as though he dies two or three times, which it's a thing. That's the way it was done. So we just kind of have to take it and roll with it. I also thought it was interesting as he was getting closer and closer to the moment when he actually did indeed die. I also thought it was interesting how much more fixated on the treasure he became, actually fixated on the treasure. And I'm not sure if that was Dumas kind of following the construct of how these kinds of dramatic scenes were supposed to play out, or if he's telegraphing something to us in Faria's behavior at that point. He had kept away from talking about the treasure for years then he finally shares the information with Edmund. So at the very end, he knows he can be honest with Edmund, but it, it goes beyond that. It's like the temptation, the lure of gold and riches and treasure had been there all along, and it was only exposed at the end when he's weak. Or it could just be that he knows that Edmund if he ever manages to get out, is really going to need that treasure. And he doesn't want Edmund to uh, feel bad about going to try and find it without Faria there. I don't know. I have no idea what that's about. If you have an idea, please call in and share 206-350-1642. And there is something else important going on in this chapter especially. And it's something that our fabulous Sarah and I talked about before and something, obviously, that I couldn't share with you back then. Edmund is now 33. And how does he get out of the Chateau d'If? 
he gets out of the Chateau d'If in a burial shroud, a sack. A winding sheet would have been what they gave to poorer or less important people. Faria actually got a sack. Now, if he'd been put in a winding sheet where they literally just wrap you up in a sheet, it's a, a shroud. Edmund would never have been able to pull off what he did. But Faria, because he was a good prisoner and because he was an abbe, they give him the sack. Great. But it's not an accident that Edmund escapes by being dead. And it's not an accident that he escapes by being dead when he's 33 and naked and thrown into the water. And if you don't know where I'm going yet, I will spell it out for you. There are two important symbolic things happening here. I am going to give away a spoiler alert here because you already know. (laughs) Edmund has been flung into the ocean. Yes, he's going to survive. We have another thousand, eleven hundred pages to get through. Uh, Edmund's going to survive. So I'm just going to say that right up front so that we can talk about the rest of the good stuff. Edmund had said earlier in the book that being in the dungeon was like being buried alive, that he was already dead. And so that's number one. He manages to get out by his old self dying, symbolically. It cannot be possible that you could go through 14 years of what he went through and not emerge changed fundamentally. So we have our our rebirth imagery. He's in the water. He is naked in the water. He is starting anew. This is a, a new life, a rebirth, clean slate, all of that. That's one thing that's going on here. The second thing that's going on here is the 33 years old thing. The other person, whether you look at him as a literary figure or a inspirational and religious figure, the other person to remember and who Dumas very, very clearly wants you to remember and be thinking of is Jesus. And he's not doing this because he wants you to think to yourself, aha, Edmund is God or Jesus or a reincarnation or anything like that. It's he wants you to have that image in the back of your mind. This is a man who has gone through intense suffering and deprivation and mistreatment at the hands of his captors. And on so many different levels, from him being such an innocent at the beginning of the book, all the way up until now, there are lots and lots of parallels that you can draw. And just like Bertolt Brecht uh, a century later, Dumas doing this to set us up so that we watch what happens next a little bit more closely. And so that's one of the reasons why I said these these chapters are big chapters in that they are big emotional. We lose Faria, which is just painful and heartbreaking and something that had to happen. It is just like Obi-Wan Kenobi holding his lightsaber up so that Vader can 86 him. And, and it's awful, but it's just like a, a teenager growing up and finally starting to disagree with their parents because they are trying to figure out how to be themselves instead of an extension of who their parents are. You know, they they grew up in a different time than we did as a parent, and necessarily they are going to have to be their own people. 
and you're not always going to be there to do things for them. So this is a, a tricky situation and it's a tricky situation for Edmond as well. So we have the big emotional loss of Faria. We have the big emotional first downturn with Edmond and then upturn with Edmond as he realizes there is a chance for him to escape sooner than he had ever imagined. And then there's the fear. Well, there's there's the horror of watching how everybody treats Faria's body. I find that so sad. And yet so human, I guess, sadly. And then there's all the the fear and excitement of will he, won't he, you know, is he going to get caught again? Because everything seems to go wrong for poor Edmund. It looks like he's going to get out of all of the, the trouble with Viefor. And then he has that horrible turn of fortune where Viefor sees Noitier's name. And we think he's going to be treated well in prison. And then, oh, no, he's thrown into the Dutch. But that means he gets to meet Fari. But that, you know, it's just back and forth the whole time, which is great. And so we have that terror of, is he going to make it? Is he going to get caught? Is he going to have to fight his way out? And then he is flung into the air with a 36-pound shot tied to his feet. 36-pound shot, that would be a, a ball, a ball of iron. That's a cannonball. And French naval artillery at the time measured their cannonballs differently from British measurements. So if you are familiar with British naval history or American naval history, you might be saying to yourself, 36-pound shot, that's got to be a mistranslation. That'd be a 32-pound shot. And no, it wouldn't be. It is a 36-pound shot. In weight, that's about 3.25 kilograms. The caliber, so the diameter of this particular shot is 174.8 millimeters. The 0.8 matters a lot when you're talking about something that has to fit inside the muzzle of a gun or a cannon. That's obviously 17.48 centimeters. And roughly in inches, that diameter would be about 6.8 inches, roughly, not quite seven inches around. Now, depending on which age you are talking about when it comes to cannon shot, sometimes French musicians were bronze, sometimes they were iron. Uh, depending on the caliber that you were talking about, sometimes they're lead. Right now, I'm fairly confident that what we're talking about is a cannonball made of iron. That's about seven inches in diameter, and that's heavy. I mean, 36 pounds is heavy. 36 pounds tied to your feet as you're flung off a cliff. <laughs> it's going to be really heavy. That's a scary chunk of weight. And yeah, we stopped here today. It's because I couldn't stop just with Faria dying. That was too much. That was too depressing. At least Edmund's outside now. And as I said, spoiler alert, he's going to survive. He's a smart guy. It'll all be fine, but it'll be very, very tense and exciting when we come back next week. So, yay, it gets so exciting now. All right. I'm out of here. Uh, again, my sister may go into labor at any moment at this point, and if I disappear for a week, you know where I am and what's going on. You can certainly follow me on social media. I will be on Twitter and Facebook, our Facebook group, and if possible, Periscope. And if I can get any decent audio up in Syracuse, I'll be on Clamor. And I've started a Snapchat account 
there were a bunch of podcasters who were playing around with it. And I've played with it a little bit, but not that much. I don't know, are any of you doing Snapchat? If you are, get a hold of me, heather at craftlit.com. I'm very curious to find out how you're using it and why. Oh, and parents, there is a new-ish TV show out there called The Internet Ruined My Life. And if you're thinking, oh, that's going to be overwrought and overblown and, wow, with a title like that, how could anything decent come out of that? The answer is, it's kind of interesting. It's a little bit like, I think it was Frontline, where they do the reenactments. They have actors acting out reenactments, but then they would be doing interviews with the real person involved in whatever the story is that they're telling. This show is done the same way. So you do get to see the actual person involved talking about what happened. And then they have their little dramatic reenactments of whatever the situation was. Uh, the thing that I found interesting is that some of the cases, I've only watched a, parts of a couple of episodes, the cases that they have mentioned, uh, two of the four cases are ones that I was familiar with when they were happening. And that's a little unsettling, I think, in some ways. The other thing is you should preview the show before you share it with your children. But I think some of those episodes are really worth sharing with your children. I know my older son was saying that they had some huge multimedia show come into his high school. And it was trying to warn them of the dangers of bullying and especially cyberbullying. And he said, you know, the kids were polite while they were watching, but quietly they were giggling and making rude comments and cracking jokes about the whole thing. And he and my husband were talking and I had gotten to a point where I said, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. It stunk. You were bored. You thought it was stupid. Fine. What would you have done differently? You know that it's important to get this information across. You know that kids especially are making some pretty bad choices every once in a while. And it's doing damage to them for the rest of their lives in some cases. And in some cases, kids are killing themselves. And he, of course, sees all sorts of trolling going on on the web. And he said, and I thought this was very smart, it probably would have worked better if instead of the victims being the ones that you saw on the screen talking about how their lives were ruined, if you saw the bullies, if you saw the trolls talking about what they did, why they did it, what was going through their mind, because probably the answer for why is, oh, it was just something I was doing. But the consequences of getting someone to leave school or, or attempt suicide or even, God forbid, actually kill themselves. The repercussions for the person who started all of that, that's the scary part because that's the there but for the love of God go I moment, the, the come to Jesus moment. And that's the thing that you need to try and get across to the kids. I don't think this show does that. They haven't actually talked to any of the perpetrators. And in fact, in one of the episodes, I got really angry because the perpetrator not only got away with it, but apparently, as far as the storytelling goes on the show, never even got sort of a little bit reprimanded. And nobody is talking about his behavior at all. They're just talking about the girl's behavior, which ticked me off. You can watch it for yourself and see what you think. But... It did bring up that episode of This American Life from last year, I think it was. I can't remember the episode number, but the title is, On the Internet, If You Can't Say Something Nice, Say It in All Caps. And if you didn't listen to it back then, it is well worth listening to now. And you can find the link in the show notes at craftlit.com. 
along with links to all of the different places that you can find me online on social media and keep in touch with me that way. Once again, the Facebook group is very active. You do have to ask to be let in. I don't know why it has to be private like that. It shouldn't have to be. But I have noticed, thank you so much, that many of you are now letting people in. Sometimes when you go into the Craftlet group page, if you look in the upper right hand edge of the sidebar, you may see so-and-so people or X number of people have asked to join. In a truly private group, I would have to be the one, since I created the group, I would have to be the one to allow people in. In a non-completely private group, anyone inside is allowed to let anyone else in. And many of you have started doing that. And thank you so much. Because when I get into a a groove where I have the the work life and the craft lit life and everything is big and overwhelming, the thing that drops off is anything online that is social. So email, I don't open. Twitter, I don't open. Facebook, I don't open. And that can go on for several days, depending on how difficult things are and how much Andrew is traveling. So I very much appreciate your help in that. And last thing, and then I'll let you go. Three Men in a Boat, we are past the halfway point. We are heading towards the end. Once Three Men in a Boat is over, I have several ideas for possible premium books, but I would be very interested to hear from you. You can email me, heather at craftlit.com. You can post in the Facebook or Ravelry groups. You can tweet at me, either at Mama O or at Craftlit. And of course, there's the brand shiny spanking new voicemail. Number hasn't changed, but the service is better and more stable and not going anywhere. I was able to keep our number. So 206-350-1642 to let me know what book you would like to see on the Craftlet premium feed. And I think that's it. Happy almost end of April. Happy 10 years to us. I know many, many listeners who are still listening have been listening for 10 years, which absolutely blows my mind. You are are amazing people to have stuck with me that long. I am looking forward to another 10 years. And here's my thinking. At the next 10 year point, we should have an actual party in person. We should plan well in advance and figure out a place where we can all get to and and sit down and have a drink and talk about these fabulous books that we've been reading. And if we can't do it in 10 years, maybe, maybe we can do it this year for a belated 10-year anniversary, and we can do it in Paris. Wouldn't that be lovely? Have a little 10-year anniversary dinner on the Eiffel Tower, because that's where we're going to have our last dinner, in Paris. We'll talk about that more later. All right. Have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. 
Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 